here. Uh, it's so great to see leadership development happening, to see people stepping up and stepping into new roles and ministries. It's so great to hear what God's doing with you in terms of influence, both locally here and in the nations. It's so exciting. We had a great wedding yesterday as we celebrated uh, uh, Luca Cattrall getting married to Tom Hobbs. And uh, we fondly remember the whole Cattrall, fa- well, I should say Sweeney Cattrall family, just to be <laughs> correct. Shouldn't I, Maria? Uh, the whole, uh, it was more Sweeney Cattrall in those days as well than it is now. But uh, we, I remember the whole <laughs> vegetarian. You're still holding out, aren't you, Maria? One's still holding out, yeah. Um, it, was, uh, it was just wonderful to see them all, get, uh, when they got saved in... Uh, I think the early part of the 2000s, 2001, 2002, see the whole family come to Christ. And uh, just to see all that's happened uh, with them uh, was just so thrilling. So I want to bring to you something today which is slightly unusual, uh, not unusual in terms of its message, I think, but unusual that we don't often talk about these things. So that's really got your interest. I grew, up, um, I grew up in the home of an evangelical parent, so I'm very grateful to my parents. I'm very grateful for the input that they gave me as a young person. Uh, they taught me about Jesus. They taught me about God. They taught me about a personal relationship. And when I was about eight years old, as you probably know because you've heard my story ad infinitum, in a local tent mission that the local churches put on, I heard for the first time that I needed to apply what my parents have been telling me personally. And that I needed to come forward, I needed to give my life to Jesus, I needed him to become my personal Lord and Saviour, and at the age of eight, I surrendered my life to Jesus. And that's why I'm really passionate about things like North, as we gather this summer. Uh, it actually, I'll, I'll, a little teaser here, which Paul will tell you more about next week, actually it's the last North we're doing uh, in this setting. Um, but we've done it for 10 years. We're having a glorious celebration of the last one. You don't want to miss the last one. I tell you what, there is going to be stuff happening there that will be amazing and will be incredible and will be really stirring and really equipping. So we've held the price open for another three weeks at the cheaper rate so that you can book in. Don't miss that one. But I'm passionate about that. I'm passionate about opportunities for young people and children particularly to give their lives to Jesus. But at the age of 16, I joined a similar church to this. It wasn't as big as this, uh, although it was significantly bigger than my Methodist uh, church that we had left, and it was about 35 people. And for the first time, I understood the church. I felt to be obedient to Jesus by getting baptised in water, and the elders afterwards laid hands on me and prayed that I might be filled with the Holy Spirit and powerfully I was. And what got me though was that God has big purposes. What I understood for the first time at 16 years old was that actually God rules over all. And this wasn't about just some personal little relationship that I had with Jesus, that I got my little ticket to heaven, that I was all right, Jack, thank you very much. I'm secure. I'm going to heaven. The world's going to hell. I don't really care. But actually I saw for the first time the glory of the bride of Christ, the glory of the church and that the church is supposed to shine out like a city on a hill. It's supposed to shine out like a glorious light. And actually, we're supposed to fulfill the prophetic chorus that goes right through the Old Testament. As surely as I live, says the Lord, one day all the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, just as the waters cover the sea. We went down to Saltburn, as Anne said, on uh, Friday afternoon and looked out, and surely enough, all the sea was covered with water. You know, it's amazing. All the time it happens. And God says, every time you look out on the coast, you're supposed to remember that one day all the earth is going to be full of the glory of the Lord. How is that going to happen? Through the local church. Through bodies of believers like this, shining out, making a difference, making an influence. Now, at 16 years old, I was rather naive. I just assumed that everybody I told would sign up to this, and many did of course, I remember many of my school friends coming to know Jesus, but I was amazed at the world view, growing up this was the late 1970s, uh, I was amazed at the current world view, uh, I was at college at the time doing my A-levels, and uh, my 
um, English and philosophy teachers didn't believe this. I was amazed to find out that, uh, in fact, they didn't only not believe that God was alive, they thought that they'd killed off God in a previous generation. God was dead. God is irrelevant. We're building a world without God, don't you know, Jeremy? And God has no place in this world that we're now building without him. We've kind of intellectualized him away. He no longer exists. My biology and chemistry lecturers explained to me that it's, you know, it was all luck and chance in the first place anyway, and it, it, God doesn't exist, and it, that was just a way of paying man trying to understand it. And they built a worldview, they built a society which now 30 years down the line has come to fruition without God. And I am more and more convinced that we need God in society. I am more and more convinced that we need to shine out, that we don't withdraw from society, that we don't become those who of a previous generation saw the world getting darker and therefore instead of letting their light shine brighter, they actually took their light away. And prayed, oh Lord Jesus, come back again. Please come quickly. Save us out of this terrible mess. Now, Jesus will come again, and he will save us out of the world, but not before the whole world has been influenced by the light of Jesus Christ. Not before every man, woman, and child has had an opportunity to respond to Jesus. Not before the gospel has gone to every tribe, every language, every nation. I am so passionate about the local church. I'm so passionate about seeing the local church be who she is supposed to be, a shining light on a hill, not shrinking back from society. Now, if you've got a Bible, turn to a very unusual place, the very first chapter of Genesis. Genesis is the book of beginnings, the book of origins. It doesn't actually tell us from a scientific point of view. It doesn't claim to do that. It tells us from God's perspective how the world was created, who created the world. It's more about who than the process. But it's so important that we understand the origins of mankind Because if we don't understand why we were originally created, we won't understand the new creation, and we won't understand what God's doing today. So therefore, if you've got a Bible, Genesis chapter 1, and I'm going to read from verse 26, a few verses, I might skip around a little bit. This is what it says. Then God said, and notice the plurality of God right in the beginning here, the word Trinity, of course, isn't used in the Bible at all, but the concept of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Plurality is right there in the first verses. Then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and the livestock and over all the earth and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man, that's mankind, male and female. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. He blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And just moving on a few verses later, and it was so, and God saw all he'd made, and it was very good. Up till that point, it'd been good. But at this point, when he made man, male and female, he said, wow, in our image, this one. These ones are in our image. This is very, very good. And we're the pinnacle of creation. We've got to understand that we're not some evolutionary process, that we're just the top of the crop, that we're just a little bit better than monkeys, although looking around... No, no, we won't go there. Um, (laughs) That we're just a little bit better than some of the animals. We have a little bit more creativity. No, actually, we're made very differently. We have, we are the only part of creation that God breathed his own life into and said that we're made in his image. Now, the writer of Genesis, probably Moses actually, most uh, biblical scholars would reckon Moses gathered together the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible and uh, collected those writings together. They were ancient documents, obviously they were in They were in the whole culture, they were in the oral culture of the day, but probably Moses collated them and brought them together. And the very language that is used is so contemporary and so 
it so stirs to the very heart, but we, we miss it because it doesn't kind of contextualise sometimes in our own language. But when Moses is using these kind of words, in the image of God, that was exactly the same language that the kings of Egypt and Mesopotamia used about themselves. They said, you're the plebs, you're the nobodies, but we, the kings, we're in the image of God. We're made in God's image, therefore you bow down and worship us. That was exactly the same imagery that they were using. And the writer is turning it right on its head and said, this is not about uh, kings and queens. Actually, this is about all of male and female. We're all created in the image of God. And actually, just as you think your kings are called to reign, just as you see the Pharaoh reigning, just as you see the Queen of Sheba and the others reigning in your day, actually, you're called to reign. Actually, you're called to influence society. You're called to spread abroad the rule and reign of God. And that is what mankind was originally created to do. We were called from the garden, from Eden, to cultivate and change and subdue the whole earth, spreading everywhere the goodness and glory of God. Because we're made in his image and we're called to reign. And we're called to rule. Now, of course, you know the story. You know that Adam and Eve chose to turn their back on God's call. It's interesting to note, in the very beginning, the the garden is almost referred to like a temple. It's the dwelling place of God. And Adam, actually, interestingly enough, is referred to in priestly language. In fact, you can do a word study and trace some of the words that God uses for Adam exactly mirror some of the words that later in Numbers he'll use for the priesthood. And one of the things Adam was supposed to do is guard the garden, tend the garden, but it's more than tend. It it has a sense of being a guardian, looking after it and not letting in things that shouldn't be there. And somehow Eve gets the blame, but Adam let the snake in. Adam was supposed to be the guardian. He was supposed to be the one who guarded the garden. But actually, he fails, and they fail in their priestly duties. They let the snake in, the the serpent in. Of course, the serpent undermines what God said. He undermines what God has said about them. He said, no, no, you're you're not just going to be representatives of God. You're not just going to be those who rule and reign under God. Don't tell God, but you could be kings yourself. You could reign yourself. You could be gods yourself. And Adam and Eve fall for this. And of course, rather than being gods themselves, they end up as servants of the serpent. And the serpent reigns. And death rules. And they end up not in freedom, but they end up in captivity. Whenever you give in to the lie of the serpent, You always end up in bondage. You always end up in captivity. But right at the very beginning, God is not caught out. God has already provided an answer. And right at the beginning, he gives a tantalizing promise that one day, you will crush. That the seed of the woman, he says, will crush the serpent. That's a bit weird. It's a bit, we don't really understand it. What does that mean, the seed of the woman? Well, later we understand it's Jesus. He is the seed of the woman. He is the, the new humanity. And he comes, of course, and at the cross. When Satan thought it was his final victory. I mean, you imagine how the hordes of evil must have laughed with glee. We've got him. He fell into our trap. The Son of God, we're killing him. We can at last get rid of God. This is wonderful, we're killing God. We're getting rid of him. They knew exactly who he was. We're killing him. And of course, Jesus didn't fall into their trap. Satan fell into Jesus' trap. And Jesus was taking upon himself the sins of all the world, paying for it stamping on the enemy's head, gloriously triumphing over him in the cross. And the whole thing is now turned around 
And a whole new humanity is birthed from Jesus. A whole new creation comes alive. And Jesus is the first of that new creation. He's the firstborn from amongst the dead. And as we respond to the message of Jesus Christ, as you've responded to the message of Jesus Christ, as those of you on Alpha are responding to the message of Jesus Christ, you become what the Bible calls new creations. Creation happens all over again. No longer in a garden, but in your heart, in your life, in your innermost being, you become brand new. You become new. You're born again. And you enter again into this massive responsibility where you're called to rule and reign with Jesus. Romans 5, verse 17 says this. It was interesting, just hearing Shirley this morning singing. And uh, she was singing about coming to Jesus. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son. And uh, she said, as we respond to that, and she said, we're seated with him in heavenly places. We're now called to rule and reign. That's what she sang, because I wrote it down. <laughs> and that's, that's what happens when you become a Christian. You get caught up in the reign of Jesus. You get called to rule and reign. Romans chapter 5, verse 17. For if by the trespass of one man, that's Adam's sin, if by the trespass, the sin of one man, death reigned through that one man. That's what happened. When Adam sinned, he didn't reign, death reigned. If by the trespass of one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant position, provision of grace and gift of righteousness, which is the gospel, Jesus Christ, our sacrificial lamb, the one who's given us his robes of righteousness, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Reign in life. Not in some future day, on some cloud, as some chubby cherub with a little harp eating Philadelphia cheese. If you're old enough to remember those adverts. <laughs> that's, that's, not, you know, that's the image we have, oh, one day we'll reign. No, now! We're called to reign now with Christ. We're called to rule now with Christ. It was interesting how Sue brought that amazing reading from Romans 5. And then as she started to pray, and I believe prophesy out of it, I wrote down even one of the phrases that Sue used this morning. And it was this, about the glory of your kingdom. She said about the glory of the kingdom coming in us today. It's not about some future age. Although, of course, there will be some future age of glory. But actually, being a Christian is experiencing ahead of time that future age in the here and now. See, Jesus taught us to pray an amazing prayer. It's not the Lord's prayer, it's the disciples' prayer, because he was asked to teach them to pray. He said, you should pray like this. Our Father, chart in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. So, of course, in heaven, the kingdom has fully come. Of course, in heaven, Jesus' rule and reign is totally seen, totally manifested. But Jesus says, a real follower of me, a real in Christ person, prays and longs and hungers for the kingdom to come now, in life, on earth, through you, as if it is in heaven. Now, I don't know how much heavenly kingdom we're going to see on earth, but I know this, it's a whole load more than we're seeing now. Yeah. I don't know how many people are going to get healed, but a whole load more than are being healed now. I don't know how many are going to be saved, but a whole load more than are being now. I don't know how much culture will better influence and change, but a whole load more than we are doing now. Because Jesus teaches us to pray, your kingdom come on earth, just as it is 
in heaven. One day, I believe, everything will be restored. Everything will be summed up in Jesus. Everything over the whole of planet Earth, every wrong will be put right. Every injustice will be brought to justice. Everything that's a lie will be lined up with truth. One day, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. One day, that will happen. Every sickness will go. Every tear will be wiped away. Every disability will be healed. Every right will be wrong. Wrong will be right. Whichever way that is. It'll all be put right. But, that's right, it will all be put right one day. Hallelujah. And we can get a whole load of that now as we pull heaven down to earth, as we see the kingdom of God coming onto planet earth. We, dear friends, are called to rule and reign with Jesus. It's interesting how Jesus, when he gathered his disciples together, Even the very phraseology that he used mirrors Genesis. Because he talks about going into all the land, all the nation, all the creation, and preaching to everyone, all creation, his message, and bringing everyone under his kingdom, everyone under his rule, giving everyone the opportunity to surrender their life to him. That's exactly the same commission that Adam and Eve had. Go, fill the earth, subdue it. Bring everyone under that. And Jesus is still doing the same today. I went well away from my notes there, but I kind of enjoyed that. Thank you, Joe. <laughs> like I do. These notes are just helpful suggestions. <laughs> Hints along the way. You know, my point was supposed to be, <laughs> we're called to bear his image. And we really are. We're called to be image bearers. And therefore, let me just say a couple of things about that. It means that we're called to celebrate the value of life. I don't know if you notice how that's being eroded in our day. Just in my lifetime, abortion has become legal in this country, and probably in my lifetime, not too long from now, assisted suicide will become legal in this country, both at the point of birth and the point of death. We're eroding the value of life. Now, I'm not particularly making a political comment on that, but I am making a spiritual comment that we should value all of life. We are bearers of God's image. What right do we have to snuff that image out? What right do we have to do that? And dear friends, we should be those at the very forefront of the debate on medical ethics. We should be at the very forefront of the debate on abortion. And termination. We should be at the very forefront at the debate on euthanasia and assisted suicide. We should be at the very forefront on the debate of cloning and looking at how we treat embryos. We should be at the very forefront of these things, debating, talking, arguing, righteously proclaiming truth, not putting our, uh, putting our opponents down, but rightly debating with them. We should be those who engage with society. I think the church in the 60s when David Steele presented the Abortion Act, didn't engage with it. They stepped back, they stepped out. Now, dear friends, we must engage with these things. We must celebrate the value of life. The most dangerous place for a baby is in its mother's womb. 200,000 abortions each year in the United Kingdom. We've got to be those who contend for the value of life. And also, and I think this will ring true here in Teesside, we've got to be those who stand up for human rights, for the right to life, for the right to justice, for the right to truth. And as Christians in the past, we've withdrawn from that and left it up to the European Parliament or left it up to politicians. No, we need to stand up as Christians and let truth be heard, let righteousness be seen, let your light be seen. And, you know, I just want to keep applauding you guys here in Jubilee at how you fight for social justice, how you fight for truth, how you fight for the rights of the marginalised, the poor, the needy, the vulnerable, the asylum seeker, refugees, how you do that here. Well done, Jubilee. Keep doing it, Jubilee. Keep standing up for truth and rights. And those who are caught in human trafficking and sex industry and those who are in prison for their faith, keep standing up for truth and righteousness because in doing so, you are proclaiming his kingdom. In 
doing so, you are actually declaring the gospel. In doing so, you are actually celebrating the value of life, that we are the ones who've had God's life breathed into them. We're God's image bearers on planet Earth. We must stand up for these things and be true to these things. Do you know what? Even the world expects us to do better than we are. They really do. And even the world actually sees what we're doing. It says they'll see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. They do. This is a quote from Roy Hattersley. I've only been to the Houses of Parliament, I think, twice in my life. Once to look round, and another time when I was working at Kingsway uh, Publications, we launched an album at uh, the Houses of Parliament. Anyway, I can remember going down there and launching this album with Dana. Does anyone remember Dana? Yeah. <laughs> We, we, oh yeah, we launched. We did a Christian album with Dana in the, in the 1987, and we launched it at the with Dana. We launched it at the Houses of Parliament, and I can remember opening the door for a respected MP, and it was Roy Hattersley, uh, he was quite an important MP at the time. And uh, Roy Hattersley, a, a year or two ago, wrote this in the Guardian newspaper. L- listen to this quote; it's fascinating. We as atheists, so that'll give you a clue as to what he believes. We as atheists have to accept that most believers are better human beings than we are. Now that's the world suggest the world accepts that. Come on, stand up. Be who you are. Be salt and light in truth. Anyway, second point. We're called to we've, we've preached most of it anyway. We're called to cultivate the earth. Fill the earth and subdue it. I've already spoken about Jesus restoring, recreating a new humanity and saying and telling us to go into all nations. Now the one thing, or not the one thing, but one of the things I love most about Jubilee is our different nations. That we are a little taste here of the heavenly community. That one day it says every tribe and tongue and language and people group will be represented in heaven. And we're getting more and more representatives than here, aren't we? If you were not, and I'll wait for translation on this, if you were not born in the United Kingdom, would you stand up? I'll just wait for a little delay on the translation. Fantastic. Stay standing, stay standing. Don't sit down, Dennis, stay standing. Isn't it, isn't it wonderful to have, I don't know, around a quarter to a third of the people who are in our church here in Jubilee who were not born in the United Kingdom but have come to live here, to be educated here, to find re- refuge here maybe? And you need to know we honour you. We need to know that we love it, that this is a church for the nations. We love that. But I want to say prophetically, God is actually adding another statement to that. It's not just a church for the nations. It's a church to the nations. And actually, more and more, this church is going to spearhead the commission of Jesus, which is to go into all nations. It's not just going to be a home for the nations to come to, which is wonderful, But actually, more and more, we're going to go to the nations. Now, you guys all sit down. Anyone who was born in the United Kingdom, would you like to stand up? Should be the rest of us. If anyone was born on the moon or (laughs) anywhere else, it would be really interesting. Right Now, you are... When Peter preached his gospel message for the first time in Acts chapter 2, he said, this message is for your children and your children's children, and all who are afar off, the far-off nations. We tend to think of the far-off nations being Africa, China, South America. The far-off nations, when Peter was preaching, was Britannia, was this part of the world. Those were the outer limits. You didn't go much further than Britannia. You didn't go much further than the outer reaches of the Roman Empire. That's you. Now, you're caught up in this glorious end-time church, which is not just called to host the nations, you're called now to go to the nations. Right? So don't just think, oh, isn't it lovely, we might send a few people from Open Door to the nations. 
We might just send a few people who have found their home in here to the nations. No, you're caught up in the nations as well. Some of you will go, but all of you will pray. Some of you will physically go, but most of you will give and support and encourage. We're all caught up in this. God is calling Jubilee more and more to be a home for the nations and a sending place to the nations. God is calling us to cultivate the whole earth, fill the whole earth with his glory. You may sit down. Thank you very much. Now, in, the, in Genesis, in this passage we led, read, the imagery is of a garden being cultivated, a garden being looked after, and that cultivation spreading out from the garden, cultivating the whole earth. Now, Anne, as you know, is a gardener. She loves the garden. Everywhere we go, we usually end up with a garden that's wonderful, and then we move on. But uh, we always start with... We, I think every garden we've started with has been pretty, pretty not very wonderful to start with, and in the end, after about three years, she reckons, she can, she can get a garden going and restored. We are called as a church... <laughs> we are called as a church... Don't tell me to shut up. <laughs> we... Ask your husband at home, that's what the Bible says. <laughs> we, 30 years marriage, still the banter. <laughs> we love it. Um, we're called to be those who pull up the weeds to cultivate and to make beautiful that which is marred. We know that the thorns and the thistles came in as a result of the fall, and we're called to restore. One day, all things will be restored, but we're called to restore ahead of time. Now, I think that has several implications. I think it has a physical application. This is not a green message, although I'm sure Mr. Catterall would be delighted if it was. Uh, But it is a message, actually, that we should look after the planet. It is a message that we actually should do our bit for the environment, actually that we should be at the forefront of these things, that we should actually honour and value the neighbourhoods that we live in, keeping them clean. It's wonderful to see churches that go into neighbourhoods restoring them, cleaning them up. It's wonderful. It's a, it's a prophetic declaration of foretaste. But do you know where the worst weeds are? They're not in gardens and subways. They're not in uh, alleyways and systems. They're in the human heart. And they're in human relationships. And primarily, I believe prophetically, God is calling us as a church to make a difference amongst communities. To make a difference in interpersonal relationships with individuals, with people, in the workplace, at the school gate, around your coffee table, in your back garden, at your school or your college, in your home, in your office, in your factory... Wherever you go, God wants you to be a prophetic restorer. He wants you to be one who cultivates the earth, who pulls the weeds up in human relationships. Let me tell you two stories. One is a story of a young lady called Laura, and Laura was an NQT, i.e. she'd done her teaching degree, uh, was a newly qualified teacher, put into a school in London, I believe, where she was astounded to find bad relationships in the school. And the worst place that she found them was not in the classroom, was in the staff room. (laughs) She found that was the worst place for relationships. And she thought, what can I do as an NQT? I'm not even a proper teacher yet. I've not even got my full qualification. What, What on earth can I do into this? And God spoke to Laura, and that's the key of being prophetic, is God speaking to you. And often God speaks to you, not necessarily in the big things of life. Go to the Houses of Parliament. (laughs) Speak to the Prime Minister. Say to him, woe unto you, Prime Minister. No. God, God didn't say that to Laura. God said to Laura this. Go into the supermarket tomorrow and buy a pint of milk. You think, what? Well, I'll tell you why that's prophetic. Because in Laura's staff room... The thing that she noticed more than anything was when she went to the fridge, there were these yellow post-it notes on everything in the fridge. It said, mine, 
get your hands off your thieving toad. You know, don't eat my sandwiches. Don't, you know, it was, it was all, like, like, all these sticky notes. So what Laura did, under the inspiration of the Spirit, was when bought one of those big containers of milk, you know, big, the big six ones. She went and bought that. She put it in the fridge. She got her own sticky note out, and she said, free milk, help yourself. <laughs> and she said, she did it every day, every day, every day. She said, within a week, the other post-it notes started to come off. She said, within a couple of weeks, people were starting to be nice to one another in the staff room. Within a few months, that atmosphere permeated through the whole school, and people noticed the difference in education and in the welfare of the school and the pupils. How did it start? By one little girl going, I'll buy a few pints of milk. I'll invest a few pounds of my money each week. Put a little post-it note on it. Don't tell me you can't change the world. Don't tell me you can't change culture. Now let me give you a little bit, one that's a little bit more edgy, if you like. I first heard this on The One Show, which is my cultural <laughs> injection every week or every day. I actually like The One Show. <laughs> and, and I heard this lady being interviewed by Matt Baker uh, on, 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 the one, on The One Show. I won't do any more impersonation. On The One Show. And... Uh, this is her story, and I did some research on it and found out the facts. This is it. Mimi Asher, who lived in Brixton, which, if you don't know, is a really tough part of London, almost as tough as TS1, so. <laughs> South London housing estate, which is utterly blighted by gang violence. Mimi described her estate in these words. A place that not even the devil would walk through the streets because of the young people's lying behaviour who were terrorising people. One gang member was even pictured in a national newspaper on the front of the Sun newspaper with a brandishing a submachine gun. She found out to her horror that her son had joined this gang she decided that she must do something to stop him wrecking his life. So she began to take on the gang, not with violence, but with love. She started to open her home to the gang members and caring for them by feeding them, washing their clothes. With her neighbours, she helped set up a range of activities for these gang members, giving the young people something positive to do. They set up a football team. They did cookery lessons. They did dance lessons. They helped prepare healthy meals. They got the young people access to computers and information about training courses. Over a period of three years, a remarkable story emerged, ultimately leading to the decommissioning of the gang. Through her witness over these three years, Mimi and her neighbours helped 60 young people out of this gang and saw their lives totally transformed. The young man pictured with a submachine gun is now a respected mentor helping other young people to get out of gangs. The ex-gang leader, Carl Loco, is now a successful musician and acts as a mentor, also helping young people leave gangs. But the best news is this. Mimi's son, Michael, became a Christian and now preaches regularly in Mimi's local church. Don't say, I can't change it. Not with violence, not with anger, but with the love of God. Now, you may not better open your house, your home, to gang members but you can buy a pint of milk. You can pull up the weeds in your society. Point number three, last point. First point is we're called to bear his image. The second point was allegedly we're called to cultivate the earth. The third point, we're called to take up responsibility. Let them rule. We're called to be those who change our environment. We're called to be change agents. We're called to take up responsibility as if we were the king or the queen or the prime minister. Because do you know what? We are. 
We are those who are called to rule and reign with Jesus. And we mustn't shrug our shoulders. We mustn't join what I call the tut-tut brigade. You know, please don't, please forgive me if you do read this newspaper, but it's sort of what I call the Daily Mail brigade. You know, I mean, I, I, you read it, and I read it from time to time, and everything's tut-tut, everything's tut-tut, everything's, you shouldn't, you you mustn't, isn't the country dreadful? Nobody's doing anything to change it, we're just putting the problems out. And Christians, we've been at the forefront of this. We've been the, we're anti-everything. We're anti-fun, we're anti-pleasure, we're anti, you know, anti-this, anti-that, all, all the time. And actually, we've got to be those who not just criticise culture, but actually change culture. A really great book that I read, actually, I read it while I was still here in Teesside, is by a guy called Andy Crouch, and it's called Creating Culture. He's a Christian leader, and he, he I had the pleasure of hearing him speak at our Everything Conference in London a couple of years ago, and it's really interesting, his perspective on this is that Christians have backed out of change, and we have, we've either tut-tutted or we've boycotted things. So he gives an illustration from the film industry that I found particularly interesting because I quite enjoy films. And he said, you know, when the Da Vinci Code film came out, whatever you think of that book, whatever you think about what it says or what it doesn't say, in America anyway, I'll set it into context for you, God bless the Americans. In America anyway, there was massive backlash about that book that was a work of fiction, but there were some aspersions about Jesus and his relationship with Mary and whether they had uh, uh, intimate relations, whether they had children together, etc. It was a, an unhelpful book if you believed it. If it was the story, it was a, quite a fun, fa- fast-paced novel. But as, a, as, a, as fact, and many people kind of thought it was trying to undermine, undercut things, it, it was unhelpful. And therefore, when the film came out, the Christians all in America got together and said, we're going to boycott this film. In fact, they called it an other cot rather than a boycott. A boycott is you just don't go. An other cot is you go to another film instead of that one. So they all went to another film that weekend instead of going to that film. They reckon that out of the £220 million that Da Vinci Code grossed, maybe, possibly, one half of 1% was influenced by that. So maybe a million bucks was influenced by that. Do you know what? they call that negligible. At the same time, other producers had a different attitude. They were Christian producers, and they said, rather than us try and criticise what others are doing, why don't we try and create some good culture? And two films came out of that stable that you may have seen. I've actually seen both of them. One was The Passion of the Christ which was a genuine attempt to show the life of Jesus in a positive way. And the other was the Chronicles of Narnia, the Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe series, which again was a positive... Do you know what? Both of those films individually grossed higher than the Da Vinci Code. Now, Christians, we're called to change culture. Now, you may think, well, I'm not a film producer. No, but you could be a Laura in your school. You may be a Mimi in your housing estate. Wherever God has put you, and I promise you this, because Anne (laughs) sang about it prophetically as well, God has put you where you should be. He knows your circumstances. He knows the womb that you were to be born in. He knows the place where you're living. He knows the job which you're doing. God has called you to be a man or a woman or a young person of change and influence. And the problem is that we've made the only place of influence to be the church. Now, please don't hear me wrong. My last point is going to be about a glorious church, because that was my first point as well. But what we've said subliminally is this. If you want to be a leader in the church, or if you want to be a leader in life, you have to do it in the church. If you want to be a leader, if you're really good, we could make you a small group leader. Wow, what aspiration. And if you're really good at that, we could give you two or three groups to oversee. (laughs) I'm not just a group leader, I'm an overseer. And then, if you really do well at that, and if you're a man, we might... (laughs) We might let you be an elder. 
as the, as the vast pinnacle of leadership, which, do you know what, may only be two or three people out of hundreds anyway. Now, please don't hear what I'm not saying. <laughs> that was a freebie for my friends. Um, I'm not devaluing leadership in the local church. I'm a leader in the local church. I'm an elder. I love leadership in the local church. I love it with all my heart. I think it's wonderful to see young guys and girls coming through to leadership. It's fantastic to see what God's doing. But that's not the only position of leadership that God's called us to. In fact, it's probably very, it's probably very unlikely. It's probably very small. Just a few are called to lead in the church. We're all called to lead in life. We're all called, thank you Jill, we're all called to make an influence where we are. We're all called to do that. Every single one of you is called to shine for Jesus in a dark place. Why has he put you in a dark place? So the light would shine. Don't say it's so dark at my work. Of course it's dark. Why would he put you in blazing sunshine? He puts you in the darkest corners, doesn't he, Sue? He puts you in the dark places so that your light may shine. And don't say, it's dark in here, I wish there were more others. No, you start to shine, and you'll start to find others will come. Because this is not something we do alone. This is something actually that's best birthed in community. And I believe that we should give ourselves, in this next generation to what sociologists call the domains of life. Here, a little bit of a sociology lecture thrown in as well. Sociologists says that there are eight domains of life. You can argue, go on the internet, you can say some say six, seven, eight, nine, ten, whatever, but about eight. And these are the domains of life. Economics, agriculture, education, medical science and technology, that's just one. Communication, arts and entertainment, that's one. Uh, Governance and justice, that's another one. And lastly, family and social life. And somebody said, where does the church fit into that? It fits into all of them. And we're supposed to be in all of them. And we're supposed to make a difference in all of them. We're supposed to stand up and shine in every single one of those places. That's what the church is called to do. Now let me end by saying this. This is not a message of dispersal. This is not a message of, now just go away and influence the world and never come together. Because do you know what? I think what's going to speak to a dying world more than anything is a community and communities of love. That we're not just individuals, isolated philanthropists, just do good and nice people who are just a freak of nature. Because that's what they'll see. Just one person, they'll go, oh, that's just, you're a freak. You, just a, you know, come across these nice people, you're just a nice person. You know, you're just Mother Teresa or Cliff Richard or somebody like that. You're just a nice person. I don't know. You're just nice. But actually, no. There's a whole community here and they're nice and they're nice and they're, ni- they're shining for God and they're shining for God. I was reminiscing with Vicky earlier about, I tell Vicky's story all over the world. Uh, when Vicky first came on our Alpha course all those years ago and uh, she was enjoying it. She was getting to know God. She was loving God. But mum wasn't particularly happy about it. And mum came along to show what, what a bunch of charlatans we were. And uh, mum was a little bit angry. Mum didn't come with sweetness and light and positivity. <laughs> mum came a little bit, a little bit of an edge, bless her heart, and still carries a little bit of an edge. <laughs> Hallelujah to this day. We like it a bit of an edge, don't we, Val? That's just Val, by the way, who brought that amazing prophetic word this morning, that amazing picture about Jesus setting these charges and bringing wonderful explosions. But what Val's story was, was when she walked into this Alpha course, what she couldn't, get away with. She said, it's like I walked into a wall of love. I walked into this loving relationship and it, that disarmed me. And then the old man came along to suss us out to find out what's hap- what on earth has happened to my wife and daughter. He gets disarmed as well and comes along. It's a wonderful story of how a whole family come to faith in Christ and now they're influencing their friends and relatives as well, which is just wonderful. The issue was this. It wasn't just the isolated Shirley's nice. We all know Shirley's nice. But actually Stu's alright. <laughs> And others are all right as well. And it was a community. Now, let me end by saying this. I believe with all my heart, God is calling us as a community to act, as a community to shine for Jesus, as a community to build relationships. It's through the local church that God is going to shine his light the brightest. Ephesians 3, verse 10. Through the church, we're going to witness and demonstrate to principalities and powers 
the love and breadth of the grace of God. It's through the local church. Don't give up on the church. The church is the hope of the world, dear friends. This is not a plea to get out of the church. This is a plea to be in the church and in the world. Jesus didn't say, take them out of the world. He just doesn't want the world in our hearts. He wants us in the world, just not of it. He wants us to be in there, making a difference and shining. And I believe, actually, that verse I quoted, that they will see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. In 1991, over 20 years ago, in the movement that we now call New Frontiers, we celebrated our first Stonely Bible Week. On the stage, Nigel Ring, who was the administrator and implementer of our group of churches, got up and said, we are seeing more and more social action projects. And he stood on the stage with about six social action projects across the whole movement. Only six. Recently, Jubilee Plus, which is the New Frontiers action group, social action, social enterprise and social justice, did a survey and found out that in the north, hallelujah, of the UK, on average, each of our northern churches that responded to the survey, and most of them did, there were six projects per church. Per church. We are influencing society. When Jubilee Plus presented these statistics in the Houses of Parliament in London, the Minister for Faith and Communities, the Muslim Baroness Vazi, was there, and she said this. This is the one big reason why I have made the case for faith. Because people who do God do good. This is a Muslim commentating on our research about Christians doing good, right? I think it's hilarious. It's wonderful. She's a wonderful lady, actually. In other words, she says, faith is the basis for good deeds. It influences, it inspires, it impels at every turn. Too often we overlook the practical manifestations of faith in mother and toddler groups and school assemblies and the 98 million hours that churchgoers spend volunteering every year. For me, that's the most powerful manifestation of faith. It's wonderful, isn't it? Do you know what? People might criticise us and think we're strange because some of our views of male and female models, they may seem us strange with some of our views of community and loving one another and laying our lives down. They might seem us strange that we believe that a man too thousand years ago controls our ultimate destiny even though society put him to death but you know what they will see the love of God they'll see the demonstrations of love and they'll praise our father in heaven and many will come to know him I'm convinced that the church is the hope of the world why don't we stand in response to this I'm not going to call for response because unless I've done a really bad job we should all be responding I just want to end, uh, and you know what, we may not even sing a rousing song at the end, because this isn't all about rousing you in the church, it's about rousing the church to be the church in the community. But just as we end, uh, and it may be handy you have a song, which is great if you do, but I was getting you off the hook if you don't. <laughs> I want to just, uh, I felt this morning as I was preparing uh, in Paul, we were staying with Paul and Jean, just... Uh, felt several things just to say to you, specifically as Jubilee Church T said, and I have the pr- privilege of knowing you better than most. That is good and bad. It's good because I know you. It's bad because I know you. <laughs> and I know strengths and weaknesses. But I, I felt three things for you in terms of influence. Number one, God wants you more influential in the community. Okay, that's pretty obvious. It doesn't need a prophet to say that, but I want to say it anyway. And I felt particularly with civic leaders and business leaders that God is going to give you, Jubilee, more influence in those areas. And I felt there would be an unlocking of finance in those, as you connect with those people, there's going to be an unlocking of finance in those areas. I said to Paul, I had to look up a dictionary this morning, a couple of words, I felt God speak to me, because this is what I actually felt God say, and I didn't quite know what it meant, I had to look the words up, but I knew one of them. I felt God say, I want to take you from substance, I had to write down, substance, substance, Subsistence. Subsistence, that's it. I want to take you from subsistence to abundance. Now, I had to look up subsistence because I didn't know what it was. 
This is what the dictionary defines it as. Maintaining or supporting yourself on a minimal level. God wants to change that from maintaining and supporting yourselves on a minimal level to abundance. Now, this is what I, I did know what the word abundance meant, but I had to look. I looked it up anyway because I was in the in the dictionary. It says this: overflowing fullness with plentiful resources. And I believe God wants to give you such an influence in the community. So He wants to influence you in the community, civic leaders, business leaders, and that's going to increase. I believe unlock a key of finance for you to take you from subsistence, just surviving, to abundance. Secondly, and I've already prophesied this in my talk, God wants to change and is changing your attitude to the nations, that it's no longer just about the nations coming and being safe and gathering the nations, but it's going to be a more and more scattering and a going to the nations. And I believe that's embodied in Paul and Jean that they have brought that to you, and we honour that in you too. And on this foundation of one new man in Christ, and us being the jubilee principle, it's very fertile soil to send us. I had an email from Paul Winstone this morning in Mumbai saying, I would very much like to... Oh, no, he didn't say that. He said, <laughs> I, I, he said, I would very much like to be with you this morning, Jeremy, but I'm in Mumbai. He said, Jeremy, I just want to... And he said some kind things about the foundation that we were able to lay here has enabled us now to be going to the nations. And I believe with all my heart that God is calling you to go. That doesn't just mean sending Paul and Jean all the time. It means you guys going to nations, teams of people going to the nations, including church planting teams from here going to the nations. Last thing is this. My daily reading, and I do a daily reading, uh, was an unusual one, but it was Daniel chapter 4. Now, I know you're happy to be preaching through Daniel, and I'm sure this has got nothing to do with what's already been said, but this is what Nebuchadnezzar says in Daniel chapter 4. It says this, so this is my daily reading. I felt God spoke to me out of it. It's, it's, he says, to the peoples, the nations, the people of every language. That got my attention. That's you guys. May you prosper greatly. It's my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed. How great are his signs, how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His domain endures from generation to generation. And I felt God say he wants to increase signs and wonders here. That he wants to increase healings and miracles. That it won't just be an odd thing you talk about. It'll almost be like, well, how many do we fit in this morning? How many testimonies do we get this morning? Because there's so many we could say. God wants to just multiply that amongst you. So, supernatural influence this church is called to. Let me pray for you, Andy, if you'd like to come. Let's just respond to God. Lord Jesus, we say with uh, Isaiah, when he was overwhelmed by your majesty and your holiness, and when you said, who will go for me? You said, here I am, send me, Lord. And Lord, when we hear a message like this, Jesus, that you want us to go into all nations, you want us to fill all the earth with your glory. Lord, that you want us to pull the weeds up where we see them. You want us to be a change agent. Lord, whether it's the classroom or the boardroom or the kitchen table or the school gate, you've called us to make a difference in the society that you've put us in. And Lord, I ask you for Teesside. Lord, I love Teesside. I love this area. I love these hills. I love these uh, streets. I love these people. And Lord, we ask you for this area that we're pleased to call home, many of us here. I ask you for this area, Lord, that the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ would shine out through us. Lord, God bless every other church, every other work in this city or these towns that, that come together to make up Teesside. God bless them too. But right now, we pray that we would play our part. We would be influencers here in Jesus' name. And I pray, Lord, that at every level of society, right up through to governmental level, Lord, I ask you, Lord, that we would see the influence of the gospel spreading. And again, Lord, we pray, give us the nations. Lord Jesus, that was your prayer. 
Give us the nations as our inheritance. And I ask you, Lord, that you would give us nations, not just coming here, but going from here to the nations. And Lord, I want to pray for miraculous provision, Lord, whether it's finances or miracles, Lord. It's all miraculous. Signs, wonders, healings. I ask you, Lord, increase the spiritual temperature here in Jesus' name. We ask you in Jesus' name and for his glory. And we remind ourselves, Lord, this isn't about Jubilee. It's not about Paul Woodward. Lord, it's not about new frontiers. It's all about Jesus and all about his glory and his fame. And therefore, Lord, we ask you that every light that shines will be the light of Christ. Every person saved would be saved to Christ. Everyone healed would give glory to Jesus. Every bit of influence would result in Jesus Christ being praised to his glory. Amen. Let's worship Jesus. Thank you.